All right, well, I'm gonna start kicking us off because we've got miles to travel today. I am Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. It's my pleasure to host this new webinar uh, program that we do called Fireside Chats. A couple of quick words. Uh, first of all, for those of you who are new to the library company, we are Benjamin Franklin's library. We were founded in 1731, the first subscription library. Uh, of course, we've changed a lot over the past 289, 290 years. Um, and now we are a research library supporting all sorts of fantastic scholars who come in and do fantastic work towards uh, articles and books that reshape fields. Um, so uh, this whole series couldn't be possible without that fellowship program. It is fellows that have volunteered with, um, with alacrity and generosity to support this series. Um, and, and so I'm grateful that we can do this over the summer and sort of keep the connection alive while we're all scattered and, and siloed. Um, so a couple of quick words about the structure of this. Um, basically, I'm going to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, he's gonna have uh, 35, 40 minutes to, to talk about uh, a project he's been working on for some time. And then we're gonna open up for questions. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Scott C. Miller, who is the International Center for Finance Postdoctoral Fellow in Economic and Business History at the Yale School of Management. He earned his PhD from the University of Virginia in 2018, specializing in the transformation of the American economy after independence from Great Britain. His work explores the effect of economic, political, and social turmoil on commercial networks, domestic markets, trade systems, and business practices in the post-revolutionary United States and early 19th century Europe. Dr. Miller was notably a library company Pease Research Fellow in 2017. Welcome. Thank you very much, Will. Uh, let me get this screen share up and going. Um, well, thank you everybody for, for tuning in. And uh, I think this may sound a little cliche, so to speak, but the library company really is a, a vital institution in this country. I spent months and months of my young life and career there instead of being home with, with my wife and dog. And so uh, they were always really, really good to me. And so it's an honor to kind of be speaking under their banner, uh, so to speak, tonight. And, and I hope you enjoy it. So what I want to talk to you about tonight is what I believe is the most consequential event in American history. Um, and if it's not the most consequential event, it's most likely the most consequential event uh, that Americans largely know nothing about. And I think it's especially prescient at this moment in time, uh, kind of in the, the middle of the crisis that we now find ourselves. We're obviously having this conversation over Zoom as opposed to in person. Uh, that is particularly relevant, I would say. And, and as you can see here on the screen, and as Will uh, said, I now do history at a business school, but I got my PhD from a history department. And whereas history departments tend to encourage you to stay in the past or to, um, learn the past uh, for the past sake, uh, it's, it's quite a different mentality at a business school. And so at a business school, history is largely seen as prologue to the present. And it's an opportunity to not just talk about what happened in the past, but uh, use it to get a better understanding of our present and our future. And as I'm sure all of you know, uh, we are enduring a uh, interesting uh, present and unstable future to say the least. 
Um, and I wanted to talk about this particular topic tonight because whether we like it or not, humans reach for the past to try to get an understanding of their present um, in times of crisis. That's just kind of what we do. And as I've been doing a lot of talks and discussions about the current crisis um, over the last couple of months, the, that analogy, that, that reach to the past that you tend to hear most is to uh, the Great Depression. Um, I would say that there are certainly some things to that. You often hear, um, you know, we, we haven't had unemployment levels like this since the Great Depression. While some of that is true, I want to present to you tonight um, the idea that the best analogy is not necessarily the Depression, the Great Depression, but rather the Depression of the 1780s. Um, not just because uh, I work on, on the early republic and this is what was happening then, but for reasons I want to bring out over the course of this talk, I think it's the best kind of example of what we're dealing with right now. And uh, I want to underscore that, that as you can see from this, this scary graph, um, this depression was devastating. Its course, as you can see, looks very similar to the Great Depression in how it transpired. Um, to the point that Peter Linder and Jeffrey Williamson, two of the greatest economic historians around today, uh, said that the Revolutionary War and Confederation era turmoil, which is the depression that we're talking about, may have been America's greatest income per person slump ever in percentage terms and was inflicted on a much poorer population than the Americans who suffered the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, the fact that the public largely doesn't know about this and that historians, in all honesty, have largely missed it, um, to me is largely inexcusable, especially because the founders knew that this was an important event and that it would most likely shape the entire course of the United States moving forward. Um, Alexander Hamilton, who you can see over my, my shoulder here, um, said on the cusp of independence in a letter to the governor of Rhode Island, we in all probability hasten to a dangerous crisis from which it may be much difficult to emerge. And if this is true, which hopefully I will convince you that it is, um, this depression was a, if not the central context for the founding era. And so what I wanna do tonight is reintroduce you or perhaps introduce you for the first time um, to this depression of the 1780s. And I want to do so um, in kind of a broad sweep, um, but I want to do so for two reasons in particular. The first is the history department answer, right? Um, it is our history, and it is the central context for the foundation of the United States as we know it in its earliest and, and most formative years. And then the second is the business school answer, right? Um, the best analogy for the present, I believe, is this one. And so as we move along through the night, what I wanna do is kind of outline this uh, depression for you, introduce it to you, while at certain moments, kind of taking uh, a little intermission to connect it to some of the events that we're enduring now, um, while also uh, giving you a hint in some of the research, the more in-depth research I'm doing, actually I was doing it all day today and, and all, of, all the last, several months to try to understand this crisis much better because it is um, widely unknown in the scholarly as well as, as the public. Um, and then what we're going to do is have a Q&A. I am going to fly through some of this material and I do apologize for that, but 
Uh, if you do have questions either about this crisis or the current one, feel free to uh, send them in and, and we'll address those in the Q&A. Um, but the underlying premise that I want to kind of uh, fill out for you or kind of lay down first thing is this idea that is kind of the core to my entire historical philosophy, and that is economic crises profoundly shape the societies in which they originate. We need to realize that, you know, ex ante, that we will not have a say in this. History tells us that our society will look very, very different um, if our crisis today even comes close to resembling those that come before it. And what I also want to outline is that while our society certainly will change, we do have some degree of agency in the direction that change takes us. And that if we can kind of get a sense of what happened in the past, hopefully we won't make the same mistakes and we'll improve upon what they did. So where do we start? Um, well, we need to start by understanding that something truly disastrous did happen to the American, the American economy between 1775 and, and 1790. Uh, this was everything from currency and in credit crises to widespread bankruptcies and defaults. Um, on the societal side, civic unrest became ubiquitous in every state. Economic warfare broke out between the American states themselves and you saw an altogether uh, uh, decomposition of the American social, economic, and political fabric if one did indeed exist uh, at all. And so kind of counter uh, 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 in contrast to the countervailing narrative that is kind of pervasive in, in uh, the public and even in the academic literature is, is, I'm taking this quote from a friend of mine who wrote it, I wish I had written it, but um, I'm gonna steal it. Rather than striding forth among nations, the United States limped into independence under the weight of economic disaster. And so what I want to do before we really get into the meat of this, uh, this talk is ask you to take a second and kind of check your priors on this subject if you have them at all. My guess is that you do and you just don't know it. Um, but what I mean by that is it's very difficult for us to put aside our knowledge that the United States has become the global economic superpower. And so what we tend to do, whether intentionally or not, is kind of take that, project it back on the past and say, okay, you know, there may have been some problems here, um, but the United States became independent and kind of went on a glide path toward becoming a superpower. And this was undoubtedly not the case and, and, and quite the opposite. Um, while there are some difficulties with this type of analogy, the United States at this period was much more uh, like a developing nation in the common parlance um, than a developed one. It was a colonial economy uh, that was resource rich and designed to extract things from the ground and send it to a metropole um, across an ocean. And so in this way, uh, it was susceptible and vulnerable to kind of uh, geo-financial and geo-economic factors that the United States today may not be. So I want you to kind of keep that in your mind as we move through the rest of the talk. All right, so the first thing we need to understand about this crisis um, is that it was indeed a national crisis. And this is quite rare as far as crises in American history go. Um, what 
tends to be the case because of just the vast nature of the American geography is there is a crisis in one place and then it migrates to another, migrates and migrates and migrates. Um, it's very rare that one place, or the entire nation are experiencing a crisis at the same time, but that's exactly what happened here um, for a couple of main reasons. The first is that the British Navy blockaded the entire Eastern seaboard and uh, the British Army occupied large swaths of the entire uh, nation to be. Um, and as a result, and this will sound very familiar to you, virtually all non-essential trade and internal commerce was stopped. Really the only thing that happened was the provisioning of the military um, and very, very small scale local commerce happened. And then to make this all worse and something that will seem, sound much more uh, familiar to us, is there was a large scale smallpox epidemic that impacted not just Americans from Georgia to, to what is now Maine, um, but all the way into the continent as well, um, ending up uh, affecting major parts of what we now call California. And so if you look at this national crisis kind of moving out of the revolution, um, it impact, impacted the nation um, even before it even acted like a nation itself. Uh, so if we look at the revolution and the major problems to the revolution, um, there are two main factors and I wanna address them uh, of both. The first is uh, the revolution resulted in widespread uh, and extensive capital loss. What I mean by that is beginning with the first kind of element is the United States um, experienced significant degradement to its physical capital stock. And physical capital is just the, the tangible modes of production. So that can be a field for a farmer, a building, a tool, a machine, whatever. Um, and the war brought a, a serious degradation on this particular capital stock. Of course, the way to replenish physical capital is to deploy financial capital. Um, the problem with this is that the colonies had always been almost uh, completely reliant on Britain for its financial capital. And the little capital that it did have was uh, largely housed within upper class that turned out to be loyalists and left as a result of the revolution. So coming out of the Revolutionary War itself, the country was almost completely devoid of any type of financial capital. And then thirdly, and probably most important, um, the human capital stock uh, experienced a dramatic loss as well. A, a lot of Americans don't know this, but uh, the Revolutionary War was actually the most deadly conflict in American history besides the Civil War. And in this conflict that we're talking about, over 1% of the entire American populace died. This would be the equivalent today if over the, a seven-year war, so uh, take the war in Iraq, instead of about 5,000 people dying, uh, 3.5 million died. Like we, we can't even conceptualize that. But then on top of that, um, between five and 10 times that number were debilitated as a result of the conflict and thus could not work productively afterwards. So what you have in placing this all together is a significant degradement of the American capital stock moving into independence. Um, the other main issue, which I'll focus on from here on out, is the monetary issue. Uh, if you know anything about the, the, the economic element of, of this, the revolution, you tend to know about the inflation crisis. And, and you see this here in this, this scary graph. Um, 
There were several reasons for this inflation crisis, although it did not reach the level of hyperinflation as we could consider it today, it was a, a very large problem. And there were two main causes for this. The first is, is the excess printing of continental dollars that weren't backed by anything, whether that be land or gold or silver, um, or they were not redeemable for taxes. So that currency very quickly lost its value. Um, and the second was the increasing bidding war for already scarce resources from not just Americans, but from the British and the French that came over, were trying to provision their armies um, and were bidding for goods from the United States as well. But what I want to focus on tonight, and this is where I'm going to start to dig in just a little bit into the, the in-depth research that I'm doing. Uh, it's going to have a few graphs. I do apologize, but I'll do my best to kind of describe them um, and elaborate is that if you talk to crisis fighters, and I've been, been lucky enough to meet some of the best in the world um, over the past six months or so, the thing that strikes fear into crisis fighters um, in government and in industry is not necessarily inflation, it is deflation. The, the consistent falling of prices um, is a big problem. And uh, it's not something that we kind of really get. It seems a bit counterintuitive, right? You know, hey, prices are falling. This means goods are cheaper. Um, you know, why is this necessarily a bad thing? Well, my goal tonight is to convince you that it is bad. And this is what turns like a, a significant downturn into a broad-based uh, depression. Um, there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is that it creates an adverse psychology. And what I mean by that is if prices are falling for several months in a row, let's say you need to buy something, you see that prices have been falling for a while, but then you say, eh, maybe I'll put off that purchase till next month because the price might go down. And then next month it goes down more and you say, ah, maybe the next month it'll go down. You see this kind of uh, spiral that we can get into wherein then just the normal commerce of a society is kind of pushed down the line. Um, but more important than this bad psychology, there is something uh, that I like to call the debt deflation cycle, um, which I'm going to go to uh, in a lot more depth in just a minute. But before I do, I want to explain kind of how uh, deflation arises in, a, in, a, in an economy and uh, why it did in the revolution era. So there are three main causes of deflation in an economy. Um, I bet most of you didn't think that you were signing up for Econo 101 in here, but you turned in, so yes, you are. Um, there are much more than this, but I'm consolidating it into three. The first is large increases in supply. Uh, the second is large increases or large contractions in demand. Um, this kind of makes a little bit of sense, um, according to kind of the Econ 101 uh, that, that I'm sure all of you had. But most importantly, especially in a crisis situation, the biggest factor of deflation is the contraction of the money supply. And this is a bit more abstract, um, but I'm going to lay out just a tiny bit of, of, of conception and then show you exactly how this manifests. So um, don't, don't worry about that. But a contraction of the money supply, in effect, makes the daily transaction of goods much, much more difficult and then just slows the overall pace of the economy. So what uh, spurred the deflation during the revolution? Well, there was kind of a, a triad of domestic causes, which the vast majority of the literature, which admittedly is quite, 
quite small, um, has focused on. These three factors are one, the elimination of the continental dollar in 1781. Uh, the continental dollar had become, had essentially inflated away all of its value, and so Congress essentially wanted nothing to do with it, and essentially uh, just stopped redeeming it, cast it to the wayside. It's a simplistic explanation, but uh, we'll go with that for now. Um, the second was the cessation of, of gold inflows from France and Britain, right? If they're buying goods here in the United States, they're shipping golds and gold and bills of credit over from Europe. When the war ends, that ends and the money supply contracts. And then third is uh, the, let's see, to be generous, the small and lackluster nature of the American financial system that was simply not able to push back um, on some of these larger uh, countervailing forces. But while the literature is largely factor, uh, looked in and, and ascribed uh, the depression to these domestic factors, the work I'm doing right now essentially argues that just like the Great Depression, we need to look outside of the United States to understand why the United States got as bad as it did. And what happened in this particular case is the United States fell victim to British policy um, which in turn caused a massive contraction of the American uh, money supply and thus uh, a, de uh, a deflation cycle uh, that went on for years and years and years. So again, go back to that, that framework I mentioned at the beginning. Um, the United States is not a future economic superpower at this point. It is a developing economy at best. Uh, without the financial institutions able to push back against the, the policy apparatus of larger uh, economic and financial powers. So what happened here um, is throughout the war, and even a little bit before that, the British money supply itself had been contracting pretty significantly. And most importantly, as you see in the blue line, um, the gold supply had been falling quite dramatically. Um, to the point where it almost disappeared. And this really unnerved, unnerved British policymakers. So in 1784 and in 1785, um, the Bank of England and the British Treasury enacted a series of policies uh, identified in these vertical dotted lines to kind of bring gold and money back to Britain um, and thus boost the British money supply. And as you can see, if you look at where these lines are and you can see what happened afterward, they actually did a fantastic job. The problem was, as I mentioned, the United States did not have the institutions or resources to pu push back against these factors. Um, and they were in fact uh, unable um, to stop these effects on their own shores, even if the British didn't necessarily mean to impact the American economy the way it did. Another scary graph, I'll just uh, describe it very quickly. Um, so what did these policies look like by the British government? I just want you to focus in on this area right in here, if you can. Um, there were three main things that the British government did. Uh, the first is they raised short-term and medium-term interest rates. And what that meant is they were essentially enticing British money to come back into the British economy um, with the promise of higher rewards on the capital they invested. You see this all the time um, in modern day. And uh, what this essentially does is it makes investment more attractive where you would have higher interest rates because um, the risk is much higher if you invest outside of, of kind of the, the global economic hegemon. 
um, but investors are willing to do it in order to get higher returns. But if you have an increase in interest rates, that makes the, the, the risk-adjusted return much more appealing and uh, results in money flowing back into uh, the kind of the economic and financial center. The second main effect, or the main policy, was British policymakers essentially making the Bank of England and lots of other uh, high-powered British banks stop discounting or redeeming uh, bills of credit from American merchants. And what this did is it didn't just cut off credit to American merchants by way of British merchants, is it resulted in essentially the entire um, cutting off of what they called book credit, which are both assets and liabilities um, in terms of a credit apparatus, but it also con uh, contributes a significant portion to the money supply. And so book credit goes away, the money supply contracts, just like we were talking about earlier. And so uh, one final policy is, is Parliament actually outlawed the exportation of gold outside of the empire, which also you have gold coming back into Britain and no gold going back across the ocean toward the American Republic at this time. And so what this essentially did is it created a gigantic vacuum in Britain that sucked gold and, and, and broader monetary elements back, um, resulting in a contraction of the money supply in the United States and falling prices thereafter. I don't have time to go into this awesome chart that I have up here on the screen because of time, um, but essentially this is me showing my work. And if anybody is truly interested, I will happily uh, explain this to you. But for now, uh, you're going to have to take my word for it that this is what was going on. So I've given you the argument that there was a monetary contraction and resulting deflation in the United States. Um, so the question remains, how did that infect the broader economy? What did that look like in tangible terms? Well, it really inaugurated what I am using broadly to call a debt deflation cycle. There is a, a much more technical definition um, for this term, but I'm using it more broadly to outline um, this cascading cycle of increasing bankruptcies, falling investment, and uh, increasing unemployment that come as a result of, of, of significant deflation. So bankruptcies, um, what's going on here? Well, the mechanism here is, is fairly simple to grasp. Let's take, um, for example, that you're doing this, excuse me, the same amount of business, which is a stretch in this type of situation, but let's just assume for the moment you're doing the same amount of business as a business owner, but your prices are going down. And so even though you're selling the same amount of stuff, your revenue or broader income is continually ticking downward. Well, the problem is the debts that you've contracted in advance of this uh, deflation spiral they don't go down when your revenue goes down, right? If you're losing money in your business, you still have to pay the mortgage on the property. You don't suddenly see that start to tick down when your prices go down. And so what happens in the, in the parlance of, of the trade is that as your revenues go down and your debts stay the same, your, your real debts actually get much bigger. And why businesses can deal with this for a short period of time, if this cycle kind of continues at all, you start to see businesses um, default on, on their debts, um, which I was reading an article in the New York Times right before I got on this, uh, on this call, and uh, we're starting to see bits and pieces of that. Uh, can go into that later if you want. 
Uh, nonetheless, you start to see if this extends over any period of time, a rash of bankruptcies. Um, and this was ubiquitous in the 1780s United States. Um, George Van Cleve, who's a, a friend of mine and an excellent historian um, on this period, did research on this. And he found that in just one county in Massachusetts in just one year, um, there were nearly 3,000 debt cases, which was a uh, uh, over two and a half uh, times increase over a similar period uh, just before the revolution. And uh, this, like I said, this was not just a case in Massachusetts, this was everywhere. The historian Bruce Mann from Harvard, who I just found out, uh, believe it or not, is Elizabeth Warren's husband. Um, interesting. Uh, but he wrote a fantastic book called Republic of Debtors in which he essentially made the case that you could not get away from these bankruptcies as they were everywhere. And I can, I'm sure you can understand the broader economic implications of this. So the second thing that tends to impact the broader economy as a result of deflation is falling investment. Um, the mechanism here is quite similar. So let's assume that uh, uh, prices are going down, thus your, your revenues uh, are going down as well. Um, and while, let's just assume for the sake of this that um, interest rates are staying the same. This is actually not likely. Interest rates are, are likely to go up. But if you just take this model at face value, your revenues are going down, the interest rates that you would have to pay for a loan or any other kind of credit are staying the same. And so that gap is increasingly opening, making the real cost of credit that you would have to pay um, much, much higher. And as a result, um, investors tend to either put off investment altogether um, or, or lessen it in order to, to save on their costs. And as a result, you get uh, falling or in many cases cratering investment across the economy just at the, at the minute that you need it the most. Um, I could give you, I, I was picking out examples of this. I could give you a hundred different examples, but I'm going to focus on this gentleman, Thomas Evans, um, from the, the incredibly morbidly uh, named Murder Kill Mill uh, on the border of Pennsylvania and Baltimore. And he wrote to his friend uh, Levi Hollingsworth in Philadelphia, he said, I am about rebuilding this mill, um, which was actually damaged in the war, but money is so scarce here that I can't get a shilling for anything I sell, so I can't possibly carry on the, the building or the rebuilding. Again, this is just one of many examples uh, that kind of infiltrated the American economy during the 1780s. And then finally, um, the one that is probably most deleterious and the one that we would most recognize right now is significantly increasing unemployment. Again, the mechanism is quite similar. You have your revenues going down um, and wages or what we call in the biz uh, tend to be sticky if, if wages tend not to move, um, but if they are uh, negotiated downward, that tends to take time and they certainly don't go as fast as prices are falling. So as a result of that, you have the gap between your revenue um, and your labor cost increasingly going. So as your real labor costs go up, um, you see declining uh, employment in terms of, of uh, diminishing hours, uh, furloughs, if we use the, the modern parlance, or absolute layoffs, so of which we're seeing a lot right now. And uh, again, this was a fundamental element of this period during the early republic. It's very difficult to actually nail down numbers, um, but 
uh, we're seeing, we would have seen unemployment rates of quite similar to what we're actually experiencing right now. And I want to take a moment to pause to say um, that this uh, deflation cycle didn't just hurt workers um, that were wage or contract workers. They also really hurt um, the, the millions upon uh, millions of enslaved workers that uh, were a prominent fixture and really kind of uh, made up a significant part of the American labor force. Um, this letter that I found from William Nemo, who was a, uh, a, a merchant in Richmond, wrote to a friend in Philadelphia saying, tobacco having fallen in price, the planters will not sell it, at least no more than what they were already obliged to sell. And where that is the case, they have no money to lay out on goods, right? This is the exact thing we're talking about here. The, the, the heart-wrenching part about it um, is what comes next, where he says they had no money to lay out on goods, and they declare that they will let their Negroes go without clothes rather than sell their tobacco at the above price, meaning at the lower price. Um, so this only goes to show that even if, if these enslaved workers couldn't be laid off, so to speak, I'm sure most of them would have, if not all of them, would very much have wanted that, um, this deflation cycle impacted their standard of living quite similar to the way it would have impacted um, other workers in the economy. So one of the questions you may be thinking as you're sitting and hearing about this whole thing is, well, why didn't markets kind of recover? You know, you, you hear in Econ 101 that markets kind of come to an equilibrium. Um, why didn't we see this if this went on for year after year after year after year? Well, there's two main answers for that, right? The first is that there was, as we've heard over and over again, there was no money. Um, the actual medium of exchange was, was non-existent, um, even if people wanted to buy and sell things. And uh, people realized, despite what some people today, I, I've recently heard are saying, that the barter system is increasingly inefficient and just not a good way to do things. Um, and so as a result, uh, you can't have market prices kind of equalize in, in that way. And then another issue, which I believe is much more important, um, and it's something that my, my upcoming book is kind of focusing on most, is there was a lack of market integration in the country at large. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, for example, let's say uh, that there is, you know, a glut of N95 masks in New York, and there's a scarcity of them in Boston. Um, most likely, according to tra traditional theory, if there's a lot of them in New York, the price will go down. If there's less of them in Boston, the price will go up. And what somebody will do, well, they will go buy the cheap masks in New York and take them to Boston, sell them where the price is higher, and the, the market will over time kind of equalize um, both in terms of the stock and the price. The problem with this is you have to assume that the markets are connected, that you can take these uh, masks from New York and sell them in Boston. The problem in this case was the American economy was set up um, much like a colonial resource-rich economy um, whereby the entire economic system was structured not amongst the colonies trading and doing business with each other, but rather each kind of individual pocket pulling things out of the ground and sending them off to the imperial metropole. So as crazy as it sounds to us today, it was actually not easy in any way, shape or form 
um, to, to actually trade between New York and, and Boston. And so that's another reason why uh, these, these uh, market inefficiencies didn't smooth over time. So what's the, the takeaway? Uh, I've given you a lot of kind of bad news for the economy in, in this particular period, um, but how does it spill over into broader society? Um, well, the first is that there were large scale uprisings and civic unrest. This is where the society itself kind of starts to change and come apart. Um, we all know about uh, Shays Rebellion in 1785, 86, but this is really just the most prominent of what were hundreds and, and, and even thousands of instances of armed revolt across the United States. Again, as I've said before, it was ubiquitous in every state and quite literally in every county of the new United States, you had armed uh, men and women uh, causing all kinds of problems, some smaller and some larger, um, but largely as a result of this broader economic dislocation. And then the second thing that you get um, is what the founders called division and usurpation. Now that's kind of an old tiny phrase, um, but what Hamilton uh, kind of meant by this, uh, he kind of outlined in a speech to the New York, New York legislature in 1787 in which he said, if these states are not unified under a common spirit and a useful federal government, they will indeed have wars with each other and their divisions will subject them to all the mischiefs of foreign influence and intrigue. Um, there were in fact wars between the states, some of them small scale and military, but there was an all out, and I actually have a paper coming on this quite soon. Um, there was an all out trade war between the states going on during this time period. We're talking tariff barriers being set up between Rhode Island and Massachusetts, between uh, trade uh, uh, barriers and extra taxes on goods from New York in New Jersey, all across the board. And so what this actually did was exacerbate the problems that were already uh, were outlined earlier in this talk um, and uh, caused quite uh, an exasper exacerbation of these already dire economic uh, consequences. So that's a lot of bad news. Um, we have the spillover into the broader society, but as I mentioned, um, we are uh, actors with agency to some degree. And one thing that I think we can take away from this story is, is what comes next. What you see coming out of this period, while they indeed didn't do everything right, is you do see a certain group of leaders realize that the United States was better um, than the sum of its parts, right? They decided that yes, you could in fact have the states competing against each other um, for resources and for tax revenue and for uh, benefits from foreign powers, or we can have a sense of political and societal unity, which was manifested in the Constitution, um, that would allow the United States to at least have some kind of fighting chance in the world. And, and like I mentioned, they, they didn't get everything right, but this they certainly did. Um, this kind of political unity or reform paved the way for large-scale economic transformation and reform. And this is something I could talk about for hours. I won't for all of your sake. Um, but as a result of this political and kind of societal, societal consolidation, 
consolidation, um, you started to see um, both in the states and local areas and in the federal government, um, a set of policies that really started fixing the ingrained structural problems in the American economy, right? You had a, a, a vast swath of legislation, um, much more impactful than, in my opinion at least, than even the New Deal, um, that reformed the American credit and monetary systems, kind of helped alleviate these deflation and monetary scarcity issues. You had the creation of financial and commercial institutions to facilitate transactions and trade. And actually quite quickly, and it's, it's really remarkable, you had the stitching together of the American market to the point where before the revolution, 98% of all American goods and services went across the ocean. That, that's staggering, but think about that for a second. Whereas by the year 1800, that had fallen to just about 55 to 60%. It was a remarkable transformation and one that was made possible by this broader integration. So um, what do we learn from this? What can you take out of this and kind of apply to what we're, we're going through at the moment? Well, the first is, and kind of the most important is that economic crises change societies. They fundamentally do. The United States in 1783 largely resembled that hodgepodge group of colonies that existed for hundreds of years before, both in political and social terms, but absolutely in economic terms. By 1793, just a decade later, you start to see something that looks profoundly different, right? Um, crises put societies at crossroads and you don't have a choice not to go, you know, left, right, or straight. Um, and like the founders, I believe that we are indeed at a similar place. I believe that we, in all probability, hasten toward a dangerous crisis from which it may be much difficult to emerge. Um, our society will change as a result of this, I have no doubt. Um, but what gives me hope, however, is that we have been here before, right? Our, our forefathers and foremothers have seen this and experienced this before and change will come. Um, but while no outcome is, is assured, we do have a fighting chance if we take the lessons of the past um, and apply them to our current circumstances. This does not mean take direct lines as, oh, Alexander Hamilton did this, we need to do this. But what we can do is distill down the general principles and ideas um, that they have, uh, that they applied at the end of the depression of the 1780s and hopefully uh, bring them into our current dialogue as citizens as well. So I will end it there. Um, I'm gonna answer your questions now, I, I guess. We have a, a few minutes and, and Will's gonna facilitate that, but I do wanna say I'm gonna leave um, my email address up here for just a second. If you do have any questions, I would love to, to talk to you. Uh, I love talking with people who have kind of been part of these. So uh, take down the email, uh, definitely ask your questions now, but if you would like to email me um, at this address, uh, you're, you're absolutely, I would be happy to correspond with you. Will. That was very generous of you, Scott. Um, and thank you for a wonderful talk. I know I learned a lot. Um, while I'm allowing folks to start uh, composing some questions, we already have a couple of early birds here. Um, I want to sort of start with 
something that was sparked by a slide that you had up earlier in your presentation about why didn't markets recover when you're talking about sort of the 1780s period. And I want to get at the question that you were starting to sort of tease at towards the end of this, which is why did they recover? Like what specifically helped get the colonies out of this mess? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, first off, it, it was a combination of things we could control and things we couldn't control. So what you tended to see is after the British monetary system um, kind of got its legs back under it, they lowered interest rates again, that made returns less viable in Britain, and you started to see money actually flow back in and credit flow back into the United States around 1790 or 1792, somewhere in there. Um, but the reforms I specifically talk about, um, if you want a great read, um, you should pick up and read Alexander Hamilton's report on public credit in which he essentially reforms or proposes a program to reform the entire American uh, economic apparatus. It's, it's actually quite striking. In addition to the, the report on public, poli uh, uh, public credit, um, there was a, a plan for a national bank um, and a plan for creating a system of useful manufacturers. But essentially what this did is, is the bank um, and then uh, the consolidation and expansion of other banks really helped ease the monetary situation in the United States. So we got rid of the deflationary aspects that I was talking about. Um, there was the consolidation and financing of the American national debt, um, which was actually quite brilliant and complex, but um, it helped get Americans' interest rates down, um, which allowed for more investment. Um, and it also, uh, an, another thing that was actually quite important is um, what I said in terms of the market integration question. Um, this isn't necessarily the most popular view, but I believe it's right. Um, but when you have um, the famous line in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations says, you know, the division of labor is determined by the extent of the market. If your market is really, really small, you really can't do a lot of things you're good at for very long because you can only sell to a few people. But all of a sudden, if you start expanding out your market, you can start to do the things you're better at more often. And you see Americans connecting small markets to each other by way of, of anything as small as, as like a path through a field to a little canal around a falls, um, to connecting these little rural areas to the larger cities by way of, you see a spike in turnpikes and canals. Um, and then you, what you actually see is a vast expansion of the American coastal um, trade. Um, so whereas before almost all shipping went across the ocean, within 10 years that that essentially swaps so that the majority of American shipping is going from Providence to Philadelphia, not Providence to Glasgow. Um, and so those are just a few of the, the issues that really helped reform uh, the, the, the system. Thank you for sharing that, um, that um, Hamilton credit uh, piece. I just put that out on chat so folks might have an opportunity to take a look at it. And we have a, a Hamilton question from John Meigs. Uh, he, he writes, uh, we read that Alexander Hamilton was uh, behind creating a national bank when he pushed that concept. Would he have been familiar with the notion of quantitative easing, buying debt and other securities to create liquidity and put money into consumers' hands? Oh, yes. Um, Good question, huh? Yes and yes. So a lot of people do not know this, but 
of if any historical subject is my baby, it is the panic of 1791 and 92, um, in which Alexander Hamilton directed the first bailout in American history. We had our first crisis in 1791, and what Hamilton essentially did was go into the markets and start buying up um, lots of American in government debt as a way of injecting currency into the marketplace, thus alleviating um, liquidity crunches and, and credit crunches. So this, in a technical term, is not the same as quantitative easing um, in, in a technical sense, but I, I, my guess is the broader point is, uh, did Hamilton um, support measures to actually go out and intervene in the marketplace, buying up assets and thus injecting liquidity into that market and the answer is, is undoubtedly and unquestionably yes. I have a, a paper on this crisis where I detail the bailouts um, in detail. And there were actually two or three independent rounds of them in which, and this blew my mind, depending on how you inflate the numbers. Um, but if you take the, the, the sums that were made in the day and inflate them up into current values, Hamilton spent the current value of anywhere between 80 and 100 billion dollars, which compared to 2 trillion in recent days, that doesn't seem like a lot. But any time before right now, that's a massive number. Um, and he did this in 1791 and 92. I'd like to bring in a Jan, uh, Jan Van Eck, who has sort of a, a question of a similar vein. Um, today we have welfare programs. Who did struggling Americans rely upon them? Family, church, other institutions? Yeah, Jan, um, this depended on the place. It was largely place contingent. So if, if you think about Philadelphia, they actually had a relatively robust social welfare system. It was not necessarily generous in terms of the terms. You had to go to a workhouse um, and do, in many cases, hard labor. But they did have systems by which, you know, free medicine would be given to people who were out of jobs, um, uh, where free food would be given to people out of jobs. And in some places, and this is quite interesting, there were actually cash payments <laughs> to people that were out of jobs. Um, that should sound, sound familiar. Hmm. That said, um, that was not universal. There were certainly places where if you didn't fall back on the generosity of family or the church in most cases, um, you were out of luck. But, uh, and a lot of people were out of luck in that respect. So I would say it was highly dependent on where you lived. Yeah. So not necessarily something that we want to replicate in this current crisis. I would not know. So that takes us to our next question from uh, Jan Miller. Um, what are these principles from this crisis that you believe could or should be applied today? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I think probably the first, um, and this is something that, that some people like politicize, but I think from a strictly business perspective, um, the one that we need to reform is how we do health insurance. I'm not a, medical, a Medicare for all person. Um, but I do believe we need a, a sense of universal coverage uh, in some way that's transferable and not for any ideological reason, but for the fact that entrepreneurs, if they're going to start a business, need to have some sense that if they go out and take a risk on starting a business, they don't have to worry about their child getting sick and them have to die. So a lot of times this debate is largely framed in ideological terms. Um, but if you look at countries that do have a system um, that is not uh, what we would call state-run, 
um, like Britain and Canada have a state run system. But if you look at a place like the Netherlands or uh, even uh, or, or Switzerland, which I'm a big fan of, these are completely private systems, but they are universal. And these countries have much, much higher rates of business openings, entrepreneurial activity, um, and social mobility in this particular sense. So my argument for this is not necessarily from a moral case, although I think we can definitely um, demand that, but uh, it's, it's good for business and that's been proven all over the world. Yeah, so it sounds like when you're talking about universal healthcare, you're talking about a healthcare that is detached from your individual employment. So yeah, it's your job. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And going back to the fireside chat kind of uh, nature of this talk, um, it's really interesting because a lot of people don't know that employer-based health, based health insurance was a historical accident. Mm -hmm. um, it was an artifact of World War II and the fact that there were caps on salary given. And so employers started to say, hey, we can't pay you more, but we'll pay for your doctor's visits. Um, there was nothing kind of structured or planned about this at all. It just kind of got locked in as a result of World War II and carried forward. Um, without any real kind of consideration about, okay, this was necessary at the time, but is this the right way to do that? And from an entrepreneurial perspective, I would say no. Hmm. Well, thank you for unpacking that. Um, John Meeks has another question for us. How important was English capital in financing development in the U.S. after the revolution? And was French capital also involved? No, that, that's, that's a good question. Um, yes, English capital was important. Um, Americans really wanted French capital, <laughs> but the French never really seemed to get around to it. Um, you see these complaints all the time with American businessmen saying, you know, they said they would have our back after the war and now I'm trying to get them to invest in my business and they don't seem to really care what's going on. Um, so yeah, the, the, the American economy was heavily reliant on English capital. Um, for development after the revolution, but also on institutions that were made and built to mobilize that capital and, and capitalize on it, if you will, once it got on these shores again. Excellent. And right. that actually did not change until the late uh, 19th century. America mm -hmm. was relying on external capital all the way up until the, the verge of, of the 20th century. So we're just about out of time, but I want to give the last question to Stephanie Lowen, uh, who asks, uh, there was, as you hinted, massive public backlash to many of the policies needed for economic revival in the 1780s. What might be some takeaways from handling that backlash that we should be thinking about today? Oh, man. Um, I think this is a really hard one uh, needle to thread. Um, I do think that a lot of times... Um, financial desperation causes people to do crazy things. And so I do think a certain part of that is to help relieve that financial and economic strain as best as we can um, without necessarily going overboard. That said, um, I feel that in kind of a, a a country that cherishes the kind of history that we do have and and I am a huge fan of it, um, we take our myth very, very seriously. And so this myth of, you know, Shay's Rebellion, uh, uh, that kind of the, the guy standing up and resisting tyranny, um, while that is, is legitimate in some ways, um, 
is held on to in circumstances that I don't think is necessarily tyrannical today. And so this is a hard one. I don't know if I can answer that particular question, but starting with alleviating the financial constraints on some people as best as we can within reason, I think would be a good place to start. Very helpful. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing this fascinating and topical research at this moment. Um, It's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, And as we look ahead to next week, same time, same place, your living room, uh, we'll be hearing from Allison Lange, who's going to be discussing her new book, Picturing Political Power Images in the Women's Suffrage Movement, published just last month by the University of Chicago. So with that, thank you all for joining us. And um, uh, we have a generously received your email address, so I would expect a good deal of outreach from our listeners. Perfect. Thank you, everybody. All right. Take care, all.